Uh, we are finishing up the series Hallowed, and I am basically, what I'm doing is I'm landing the plane. I'm landing the plane this morning, I'm, I'm steering the ship into the port. That's what I'm doing. That's right. I'm ending it. I am, I am ushering in the train into the station as the proverbial caboose and saying, here we go. We're done. So I'm ending it. This is our final chapter in this series, and um, I just want to, for, for really quickly, I just want to sort of recap for a moment where we've been, uh, and then, and, and then f- and give some final thoughts uh, about this series. So really, where we started from at the beginning was, we looked at the goal of God, the goal of the prayer, uh, this prayer, it was to exalt, or to uh, esteem, or to bring attention to uh, the power of God. And so, uh, when Jesus uh, started this prayer, when he gave this prayer to his disciples, uh, he first started with exalting the power of God. It was the the power of God through uh, his name, uh, where he was, that he is in heaven. Uh, It was the power of God in his name as we uh, exalted his name. Uh, Our Father in heaven, where is he? He is in uh, the very highest position. Uh, Who is it that we're praying to? We are praying to God. He has a name. His name is Yahweh. And so we looked at the power of God in his name. We looked at the power of God in his kingdom when we pray his kingdom come. We looked at the power of God uh, in his will when we pray his will be done. And so we began with the power of God. And then we transitioned uh, to the the power or to the gift of God. And we looked at uh, petitioning God for uh, the gifts that he gives. We looked at the gift of God in this prayer. And the gift was uh, his bread that he gives every day. It was his bread that he yields to us every day. And then we looked at, uh, Karen looked at the forgiveness of sin, that that God is exclusive in, in forgiving us. And how important it is to understand that there is a gift that God gives, and it's forgiveness. And that not only that, how important it is for us to forgive as we have been forgiven. That is a gift from God. So God gives his bread. God gives forgiveness. And then we also looked at, Jim looked at God giving us protection, divine shielding from temptation, divine shielding and protection from the evil one. And so we went from the power of God And then we went into the gift of God. And now finally, we're just going to end on uh, what we call a doxology. Uh, If some of you guys don't understand what a doxology is, it is a simple term or phrase or song uh, that seeks to basically um, praise God and give glory to God. Uh, The prayer finds uh, its conclusion in magnifying the godness of God. I love that term. In many respects, we're arriving where we began. The centrality of the stunning beauty and the power of God. The prayer heralds one final praise as it beckons us, the worshiper, to firmly settle our gaze on what belongs to God. The final part of the prayer is simply this, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. For yours is the kingdom and the power 
and the glory. And so my message this morning is called Providence in Possession. Providence in Possession. And, and what we're simply looking at this morning, you guys, is what has God determined by his will to be his? What has God determined to be his to possess by his will? And we see it in this final line, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Now, let me just say something here. If you have a certain translation of scripture, this is not found in Matthew chapter 6. If you have a King James Version, it's there. If you have a New King James Version, it's there. If you have a New American Standard Version, older 1990s, it's there. But if you have an ESV, it's not there. If you have a new NASB, it's not there. Depending on your translation, you may or may not find this. And you may be thinking, why are you preaching on something that's not in the Bible? Well, let me just say that this doxology, this statement, uh, has been the source of much debate by textual critics that have looked at the old manuscripts. And if you took our Zoom class or Zoom series uh, about uh, understanding the Bible and, and whether the, we can trust the Bible, you, will, you would understand some of these terms about how textual critics uh, look at the different translations, look at the manuscripts, the older ancient manuscripts, and they, and they translate uh, new versions of Scripture in different languages based on these tra transcripts uh, that we find. And you'll, you'll find that there is a, there is a sort of... Um, a debate as to whether or not this was part of the original text. But I want to just alleviate your concerns this morning about this part of the text. Whether or not it was part of the original manuscript, whether it was or was not, what we have to understand about this doxology is this, that it in no way violates the nature of God. Not only that, in no way violates the character of God. Nor does it ascribe anything to God that is not of God. And it is actually wholly inconsistent with his character as he has revealed himself through his word. So in other words, when we look at this line, we can look at it and say this is wholly consistent with who God shows himself to be in scripture. So based on, on that, we're going to look at this line and we're going to end our time in this prayer together this way. So let's take a look if you have it in your scriptures and your Bibles. The first part uh, says this, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. That is the line. And at the beginning, what is the most important thing to understand is, is that the first part, for yours, shows possession. Everything that comes after for yours is going to be what God owns, what God possesses, what is exclusively his. Now, doxologies are kind of common in scripture. I want to read to you one in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. It says this. This is a very common way in, in, in which the Jewish writers would, would end thoughts, end chapters, or end um, prayers. Listen to this, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Jude 25 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Christ Jesus, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You see, there's a consistency here that the very beginning of every doxology shows us possession. Uh, the one we're looking at is for you or for yours. Uh, in these two, it says, now to him. There's a possession being established here. That everything that comes after that opening statement says something about who God is, who Christ is. And, and here's a really amazing thing about Jude 25, is that it gives Christ joy to present us blameless before the Father. That Christ goes to the cross and he lives a life that we could never lead and he dies a death that's ours and he does it so that he can present us as blameless before God, righteous before him, that God remembers to forget every sin we've ever committed and it gives Christ great joy to present us blameless before God. And then it ascribes to him only the things that are his, glory, majesty, dominion, authority. So let's look at these for a moment. First is this, yours is the kingdom. God's word is clear that his kingdom belongs to him and him alone. We do not share in the ownership of the kingdom. It is God's rule and his reign that is exclusively his. We are granted access into the kingdom and we are to a certain degree co-heirs with Christ but not co-owners. This kingdom is God's kingdom. It's his alone and it's exclusively his. It's what makes him distinct. We get access in but we don't own it. It is God's. Therefore, the scripture says, for yours is the kingdom. Yours is the kingdom. Unlike this nation, God's kingdom is not of the people, by the people, or for the people. That's how this country works, but this is not how God's kingdom works. God's kingdom is of God, by God, for God. God's kingdom comes from him, it's sustained by him, and ultimately it's for his glory. It's not for ours. So God's kingdom is for God, of God, by God. It is his and his alone. We are not in a co-ownership with him in it, but it is his and not only that, when it returns, when his kingdom comes in its fullness, it will be in agreement with his divine counsel. It will only be because he has determined it to come in the fullness of time. God's kingdom is not constrained by the church. It's not subservient to the church. But it will come in its fullness when he determines. And we cannot usher it in. That is a very popular teaching right now in many churches that the church actually has to do something to usher in the kingdom. 
Make no mistake, God's kingdom will come when God determines his kingdom will come. Okay? It is not subservient to the acts of the church. It is not constrained to the acts of the church. But what the church does is we will simply be a participant in the coming of the kingdom. We will not usher it in, but we will participate in it because it is God's. We will participate in it when it makes its stunning entrance onto eternity's stage. (laughs) That is so awesome. And it will come when it is determined because it has already been determined in eternity past. When Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, he says this, he says, at the beginning of his ministry, he says, repent and believe the gospel. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand and the time has been fulfilled. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the kingdom of God. What is it that the kingdom of God is? It is coming. And Jesus said it is at hand, which means it's the next thing coming. It's the next big thing. It's right around the corner. He said, repent and believe and follow me and believe in the gospel. Why? Because you don't have much time. It's going to be too late at one point. The kingdom of God is close. It's at hand. It's the next thing. And it will come when he determines, not when we do. When we take authority and power over when the kingdom comes, we are not living under the power and authority of Christ. We have assumed a power and authority that has not been given to us. Next. The kingdom is his. The power is his. And that Greek word power is this word dynamis or dunamis. And it's really where we get the word, the English word dynamite. That, that word in Greek power is uh, that word dunamis. And it, and it really, what it does in this context is it, it solely, um, exclusively uh, shows how God possesses power by the means of his providence simply because he's determined it. God, it is God's power. It's God's ability. It's his, it's his uh, ability to do all things in accord with his will. All power is his, and it's been given to him because he has providentially um, determined it. Listen to what the scripture says about God's power in Hebrews chapter 1 verses th- uh, verse 3 says this, uh, that all things are sustained by the power of his word. All things are sustained by the power of his word. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says this, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by who? The prophets. But now how does he speak to his people? through Christ. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, 
The idea of radiance here is light bursting through. That he's the radiance of the glory of God. Christ is the, the bursting of light in accord with God's glory. What does that mean? That Christ comes and, and the light that bursts forth in the person of Christ is uh, assigned to the glory of God, which means it doesn't look like anything else. It is wholly and exclusively attached to and possessed by God. That is the radiance of the glory of God. And he is the exact imprint. And look at this. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So the idea is, is that as God spoke existence into creation, that there is a continual sustaining effect that his word has. And it's done by his power, by his ability, by his strength, that when God speaks his word to create, it speaks and it comes solely from him and it is exclusively his. And it's all sourced by his power, his ability, his strength, his might. Mark chapter 5, verses 30, the woman uh, who was dealing with a blood issue went to Jesus and, and said to her, if I could just touch him. And when she did, uh, the scripture says that power came from Christ to heal her. That is exclusive power that is referred to in this text as God's. It is his and his alone. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says that salvation... It's through the power of God. This is what Paul says about uh, God's power. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the idea is, is that even uh, our ability to, to know God comes from God. That our salvation is not anything of ourselves, but our salvation is only unto the power of God. That God alone exclusively has the ability to change a person's heart and to save them. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why was he being made to be ashamed of the gospel? Because the gospel was not received. Because it's too offensive for the culture. So he was made to be ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it exposes men and women for who they truly are. And we don't want to know that. We don't want a mirror put up to our face. But Paul said, I'm not ashamed of this because it's the only way someone can be saved. People cannot be saved by methodologies, by practices, by programs, by motivational speeches, by one, two, three steps. People can't be saved by those things. They are saved by the power of the gospel. They are saved by Christ and his death on a cross for us. So that we would confess him as Lord and Savior and so that he would forgive us and remove the enmity between us and God. That's how people are saved. And Paul said, I'm not going to be ashamed of this because it's the only way people are getting to God. That's it. So God's power is in salvation because he alone brings it and it's exclusively his. And finally this, his power helps us in our faith. It rescues us.
and it sustains us in our faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5 says this. I'll start a little earlier for context. Paul says this, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Our faith solely rests in the power of God. We cannot come to faith in God without the power of God. And we cannot rest in faith and have our faith be continual outside of the power of God. Paul said, I could have come with you with lofty speech. I could have come to you with philosophical arguments. I could have come to you like the Greeks come to you and persuade you with their wonderful conversations and their wonderful arguments and and their lofty wisdom. I could have came to you, but guess what? That doesn't save anything. What saves is the bold, preaching, unabashed, declaring of the gospel. And it is the spirit that works through the preaching of the gospel that changes men's hearts. That when I came and spoke to you, the spirit changed your heart. That when you heard the gospel, when you believed in the good news, that the spirit did its work and regenerated you when you heard the news. I didn't come and persuade you with wisdom and knowledge and philosophy, but a reckless and unabashed, raw message. Believe and be saved. And then the Spirit moved in the hearts of men. And finally this, the glory is God's. The glory is his. The kingdom is his, the power is his, the glory is his. This Greek word glory is the word doxa, which makes up the word that we use today. That this phrase we're looking at is a doxology. It comes from the root word in the Greek called doxa, which means glory. And all it is is it's ascribing to God glory. It's ascribing to God praise and honor. And that's what, ultimately, that's what it is. Its emphasis is the glory of God. The word doxa is what it is referring to. So what is the glory of God? We talk about this a lot. What's the glory of God? It's such a, sometimes it'd be such a a nebulous sort of ethereal sort of idea. Like, it's really big, And it's really all-encompassing. But what is the glory of God? I want to share this with you because I I think sometimes we can get so overwhelmed with it. And and certainly I think we should because it's so majestic and wonderful and, and beautiful. But ultimately what the glory of God is this, guys. It's essentially God's holiness revealed. It's God's holiness unveiled. That, that's ultimately what the glory of God is. It's, it's the unveiling of the godness of God. That, that's the glory of God. It's the unveilingness of his, his godness that, that nothing else or no one else possesses. It's the uniqueness of God. It's his distinct nature. It's his incomparable worth in our lives. God's glory includes his supreme 
value. And it's the supreme value that renders him the only one that is worthy of our worship, that he's the only one that should be the object of our praise, that he's the only one that is, that is worthy of, of all that's due to him, that it is his glory that, that causes us to worship. It's his distinctness, his uniqueness, his wonder, his stunning goodness that causes us to worship. That is his, his glory. It is, it, is, it is everything that makes him up that, that, that cannot be shared with anyone or anything else. It belongs to him and him alone. God has intrinsic glory, which means it is part of his essence. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, it says this, Paul says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is only veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the believers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So here's the idea that God's glory is intrinsic in his word and his good news. That, that by the very definition of God's glory, it is his good news that is glory because it comes from the essence of God. It is uh, ultimately who God is and has revealed himself to be. So it is every word that comes from the mouth of God is glorious because it comes from the one who's glorious. So God has intrinsic glory in that everything that makes him up, that makes him distinguished from everything else, is, is all that attribute to his glory. But there's also this thing called ascribed glory, and that is the glory we give God. Not that God needs any more glory. He's glorious enough on his own. He doesn't need simple man to give him glory. But there is this sense in our walk, you guys, that we are to ascribe to God glory. Listen to, um, listen to this in, in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Uh, I didn't write this one down, but I want to share it with you. I think it's 1 Chronicles 16, 28 to 29. Listen to this. Ascribe to the Lord O families of the people, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering. How is it that you ascribe glory? Bring an offering and come before him. As we offer God what we are doing, we are simply recognizing his glory. That our offering of worship is simply ascribing glory to him. It's saying, God, I recognize your glory. I'm not adding to your glory because there's no possible way. You are infinitely glorious, unparalleledly glorious, delightfully glorious. And I know this, but yet I am going to still ascribe glory to you through my worship, through what I offer you. So I am just testifying and I am just agreeing with you, God, that you are glorious. You are set apart above everything. And so 1 Chronicles uh, 16 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory he is due. Worship him in splendor of his holiness. 
tremble before him all the earth. This is the glory that God has and God has alone. And he's determined it by his will. So I'll end here. Simply stated this, you guys, when we pray this prayer, this is how we are to see God. God's kingdom is exclusively his and we gain entrance into it humbly by his grace through our profession of faith in Christ and by the working in the regeneration of the Holy Spirit in us. God's power is exclusively his and by it we are saved. We cannot be saved by our own power, by our own ability, nor can we keep ourselves saved. But it is by God's grace and by faith alone that we are saved and continually be saved. That God in his mercy, Christ in his mercy, is in the throne room of the Father and he is continually presenting us blameless through his atoning death that covers us. So God uh, has provided a way for us to continually be saved by faith. And so it is his power that saves us and continues in that salvation work until he returns. And God's power is exclusively his. And it is the only one that can regenerate our hearts and is the only one that can change our eternal destiny. God's glory is exclusively his. Because he is the means by which everything exists. And in him we have our being. We are effectually, completely dependent on him, thus preventing us from ascribing glory to ourselves. It's easy to ascribe glory to us. But we rob God of his glory when we take credit for anything that he does. And that's really important to understand this morning. So I want to end with this, Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. And this prayer must be prayed in the same way. This prayer is from God. It's through him, sustained by him, and it's to him. The Lord's prayer is from him, sustained by him, and it's ultimately for him. And that's how we need to look at how we pray in this manner. So let's pray in this manner and we'll be done. Father, I thank you that God, you are in heaven. You are on your throne and reigning. In Christ, you continually make an offering for us through your death before the Father in heaven to be rendered blameless in your sight. Father God, let your name be hallowed in this earth and in my life. Let your name be hallowed. Let your name be holy and let me uh, assume your name to be holy, Lord God. Let my my life be lived so that people can see the, the holiness of your name. 
Let your name be hallowed in the earth. Let you do all these things that we ask God so that your name would be hallowed, so that your name would be lifted up, so that your name would be exalted. And let my prayer exalt your name. And Father, I pray that your kingdom would come in this earth, Lord God, that as you have determined it, whatever you've determined as your will for this earth, let it come with no hindrance, Lord, just as it is in heaven. And let your kingdom come in my life, Lord God, as I see the work of the Spirit in me to develop a life that is pleasing to you, that is in accord with your fruit. And Father, let your will be done, Lord God. I pray that I would yield my will to you, that I would surrender my dreams and desires to you. And God, that you would be the one that would uh, determine all things about my life. God, that I would not take my life in my own hands, but it would be your will that would be done both here on earth and in my life this morning. And God, give me everything I need, Lord, to sustain me day by day so that I am continually and constantly um, rooted in you and, and, and supported by you and, 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 and determined by you. And not only that, that in all that I do, Lord God, I, I look to you daily, Lord, so that uh, I know that I am sustained by you. Father, give me all that I need today to live in honor of your name. God, give me through the Spirit this day patience and kindness and self-control and love and joy and peace by your Spirit, by your word. And Lord, forgive me for any sin I've committed against you or any sin I've committed against anyone in my life. Lord, bring to a reminder right now of anything that I've done, any sin I've committed to you or to anybody else in my life. And Lord God, lead me to a place of repentance where I confess and I experience times of refreshing. And Lord, show me how important it is to forgive those that have wronged me because you have forgiven me. God, not let a, do not let a day go by where you do not remind me of any sin that I've committed to you or to others and lead me into confession and to a place of contrition where I'm truly sorry for what I've done. And Lord, shield me from any temptation. Shield me from any work the enemy may have for me. Shield me from, from anything that, that, that uh, would uh, cause me uh, to sin against you. Lord, I ask for your divine protection. And finally, God, because it's all yours. It's yours. Your kingdom is yours. And I thank you, God, that you've given me entry into it. The power is yours, and I thank you, God, for the power of my life to transform my heart and to regenerate me and to call upon your name and to receive you by faith. And finally, God, the glory is yours. God, let my life continually reflect your glory. And Lord, keep me humble, keep me meek, keep me low. As I look to you and as I ascribe all glory and honor to you, Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And that's how we're supposed to pray. Right? There's power in that. There's power in that prayer.
Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.